0: Good afternoon to our listeners. My name is Vincenzo Guido, and I'm an ILR senior and co editor
1: in chief of the Undergraduate Law and Society Review at Cornell. My name is Matthew Jacob. I'm also a co editor in chief of the Undergraduate Law and Society Review at Cornell, and I'm also an ILR senior. And we are
0: coming to you uh, here today on a special episode of Law and Society Talk, uh, especially given that we have a February break coming up um, that is brought to you by the members of
1: the Undergraduate Law and Society Review here at Cornell with the generous space and airtime of Cornell Radio. This podcast is meant solely for the purposes of discourse and discussion and should not be construed to be any form of legal advice or counsel. And on
0: our normally scheduled programming, we would be coming to you on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time every other week, but today we're coming to you on a Wednesday afternoon at around uh, 5.23 p.m., so we're very excited to get underway today. Um, Thanks for tuning in. Uh, We're going to dive into a very uh, interesting series of topics today that are really going to focus on one theme, I'd say, Matt, right? Yeah. Uh, The criminal justice system, which has been you know, really a feature piece in the news as of late. Uh, So we're going to dive right in. I'm going to turn it over to Matt, who's going to kind of get us up to speed on some stuff that's been going on uh, with our favorite uh, news story, um, uh, President Trump and his uh, adventures in the White
1: House. (laughs) Yeah, sure. It's my favorite coloring book. (laughs) Okay, so uh, let's get started right here. So yeah, you know, it, it's been the criminal justice system has been in the news a lot the past week and a half, but uh, it, it was in the news again yesterday because President Donald Trump on Tuesday granted clemency to eleven individuals, and he used his pardon power to political advantage himself in many highly politically sensitive cases, Vincenzo. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, normally we see the pardon power used on a larger scale and pardoning people where the president thinks that there was a disproportionate sentence given, usually to people that the president doesn't know personally. Not always, but, you know, usually, mm-hmm. I would say. But uh, this is really not that here, Vincenzo. And the reason is because of the names of the people that uh, were granted clemency here. So, uh, you know, the first person, the person who's has getting the most news is... Uh, former Illinois governor, Rod Blagojevich. So, you know, uh, some of our older listeners definitely know Rod Blagojevich. And the reason for that is because he was actually sent to prison. Uh, He served Eight years of a 14-year sentence, only eight years because he was uh, just let out of prison last night uh, for uh, pay-to-play charges. And the most famous charge was, of course, him trying to sell former Illinois Senator Barack Obama's Senate seat. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, just a, just a very quality, uh, you know, grant by President Trump here uh, letting uh, Rod Blagojevich out of prison. So, um, you know, Trump said that this sentence was ridiculous. And he even suggested that uh, Blagojevich's wife going on Fox News is part of the reason that he was, uh, you know, he was able to, you know, really change his decision making on this because, you know, President Trump watches Fox News a lot. So also part of the reason uh, that Trump explicitly admitted to on Twitter, part of the reason that he decided to, uh, you know, grant this clemency to Blagojevich was because Comey's friend, Fitzpatrick, was the person who actually prosecuted uh, the case. So, I I mean, Trump explicitly said it on Twitter. This is not, like, conjecture whatsoever. And uh, something that I also want to talk about, uh, uh, Vincenzo, Trump actually tweeted that uh, Blagojevich did not actually sell the Senate seat, and he was implying that because Rod was not successful, that uh, Blagojevich should never went to prison in the first place. So, Vincenzo, I'm just wondering what your opinion is... With this, Because this is actually something – this is a defense that's actually come up in the impeachment case as well because you'll remember uh, the Republicans were saying, well, the aid actually was only held up for like 40 days and uh, Zelensky didn't actually start the investigation. So w- w- what is with this defense?
0: I, I think it's kind of – at first glance, it's preposterous. Uh,
1: I don't know well, – At all... all glances, it's preposterous. <laughs> I'm sorry, Vincenzo.
0: Um, I don't necessarily know all the you know fine tuned specifics here, but I mean, even if he didn't wasn't successful in trying to commit a crime, you know there is you know, if there was conspiracy to try to commit a crime that is still a crime. Yeah, sure. Um, and I would imagine that you know whatever um, Blagojevich was concretely charged with when he was uh, being prosecuted, um, you know that there would certainly have been conspiracy laws that were on the books that also would have covered this behavior to show that it was not something that was acceptable. And I, I'm really kind of you know. Not that this is necessarily surprising, given the anything but you know traditional um, you know sort of approach to everything that the president that the Trump administration has done. I, I'm really curious here how they you know were going to try to style this as someone who deserved a um, was he pardoned or was he commuted? A, a uh,
1: I'm not exactly
0: well. Sure. Who specifically you know was going to you know? Be commuted the sentence. Yeah. Okay. So for our listeners, really, what the difference between the two is this is a quick sidetrack is that when you have a presidential pardon that effectively um, forgives a federal crime and kind of wipes it away, whereas a commutation um, will uh, basically be making the sentence or the punishment that was imposed slightly more mild. So in this case, it sounds like Blagojevich's was uh, his sentence was commuted or shortened. Uh-huh. Um, but Matt, I was wondering if you could talk just a little bit about uh, before we move on to some of these other things here. Yeah. Um, what seems to be, you know, the chief
1: impetus for, you know, pardoning, oh, well, for commuting Blagojevich's sentence? Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, Trump has been flirting with this for years, actually. Um, Blagojevich, I'm not sure how close friends Trump and Blagojevich were, but something that's really funny um, is that Blagojevich, before he went to prison, but after, I believe he was indicted, I'm I'm not exactly sure on the timeline, but after the The nature of his crimes came to light. He actually was a contestant on the Celebrity Apprentice, um, which is just, which is kind of funny. But, and uh, I saw, I actually saw a tweet, Vincenza, that said that, uh, you know, all the criminal defense lawyers in the entire bar really thought that it was an incredibly stupid idea for Blagojevich to be on like a reality TV show while his charges were pending but the uh the twitter user said that it actually was probably the smartest move that he's ever made in his entire life getting close friends with Trump and then years later getting a pardon from Trump even the Illinois Republican Party the Illinois GOP put out a statement saying that they did not think this was a good move i mean it's just it's really embarrassing and i i there are no i don't really think there are any democrats i think dick durbin actually mm-hmm. oddly thought that uh that Blagojevich kind of got a a bad rap with the long sentence. But I mean, really, I mean, this is just, in my opinion, Vincenzo, just proof of Mm -hmm. more corruption. And like I said, uh, Blagojevich's wife has been on uh, Fox News, I think, like at least half a dozen times in the past year or two, trying to get the president to pardon Mm -hmm. him or, you know, commute his sentence. And uh, she was obviously successful Mm
0: -hmm. well yeah no bulgojevich wasn't the only one who was sort of caught up in the string of commutations and pardons Uh uh also other big profile names that we saw michael milken who was known as the junk bond king um Back in you know, the 1980s on Wall Street, um, and just sort of to give a little bit of background, um, you know, for our listeners, the New York Times reported that you know in 1990 he pleaded guilty to securities fraud and conspiracy charges um, and was ultimately sentenced to 10 years in prison. Um, here again, this seems to be you know yet uh, another example of really why is this going on? And w- what's interesting is that um, Milken was prosecuted by. Yeah. Um, in the Southern district of New York and Manhattan by then U S attorney, uh, Rudolph Giuliani, who's now, oh, wow. who is now, um, that's funny, very personally involved with the president, um, in a capacity basically in a capacity as his former, as his, uh, personal attorney. Um, so, so really again, you know, what seems to be the reason here? Like why people like Milken, why Blagojevich, et cetera?
1: Yeah, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure about Milken, um, I, I Once again, this is another one that Trump's been flirting with for a while. He always talks about, oh, I'm thinking about – I'm possibly thinking about pardoning this person. And he's mentioned Milken. I, he's definitely mentioned Blagojevich. And actually – We're going to be talking about this a little bit later in the podcast, but he's also mentioned pardoning or commuting the sentence of uh, Roger Stone and Michael Flynn, both of them. So, I mean, I honestly think there is a pretty good chance that that ends up happening, especially if Trump is a lame duck president here in a couple months. I think there is. Like a 100% chance he's going to pardon or commute a significant amount of his cronies that are currently caught up in the criminal justice system. I mean, Michael – no, sorry, Michael Cohen. I'm I'm messing up the Michaels that are going to prison yeah. and for the Trump administration. A lot of – yeah. Michael Cohen should not be, uh, you know, waiting for the pardon or commutation. But Michael Flynn, who is almost certainly going to federal prison – Um, Paul Manafort. Yeah, Paul Manafort, uh, who is currently, I think, I forget if he's in federal custody or state custody. He's got some weird stuff going on on the state level as well, but he possibly could be pardoned. So, I mean, you know, uh, the presidents, they exercise their uh, pardon power significantly during during the lame duck period. So, I I certainly expect more of that, uh, you know, going forward. Um, Another person who was uh, pardoned was Edward D. Bartolo, who was uh, an ex-49ers owner, who uh, stepped down as owner after two Louisiana newspapers reported he would be indicted for a gambling fraud. So, uh, like I said, this is another person who has ties to Trump. I believe he actually hosted a uh, an inauguration fundraiser for Trump. And I'm not sure how close friends they are exactly, but uh, this is just another person who has connections to uh, the president. And I'm I'm looking at a I'm looking at a tweet right here. You know, uh, Edward went to the White House. You know, right after his pardon, to you know say hi to the president, thank him for, thank thank him for his pardon. But I think Vincenzo, the, the larger theme here is just like what, I mean, we were talking a little bit about this before the recording. But what do you think about the president kind of pardoning all of these people who are politically close with him? I mean, I I, I expressed this to you a little bit before the podcast. And the idea of pardoning people who either donated money to your campaign or you're very close personal friends with just seems extremely corrupt to me. I I really don't like the idea. I think in very, very limited situations, it could be appropriate if it actually is a extremely severe sentence that is undeserving. But you also have to package that with a lot of other people who the president isn't personally friends with to make it at least Mm -hmm. look a little bit less corrupt, you know, I mean, you know, package it with another, you know, a couple dozen or a couple hundred other people, but just pardoning, like commuting the sentence and pardoning like 11 people and half of them Mm -hmm. either donated hundreds of thousands of dollars to you, or, you know, you're close personal friends with is just really not something Mm -hmm. I I like to say. No,
0: I agree. And I I think, there's sort of two ways to kind of consider your question. One, there's the legal dimension and two, there's sort of this, you know, ethical dimension on the ethical dimension. I think it's pretty clear. I mean, he, he, the president should not be utilizing the pardon power to, you know, reward cronies, political loyalism, uh, or just political loyalty. Um, unfortunately, I don't think that's a view that's shared extremely broadly. no, No, um, but, I think that you know there's a significant degree you know among people who necessarily don't look favorably upon President Trump that you know this is truly you know problematic in terms of you know we don't want to you know use the president's power you know to try to enable things that would otherwise be treated very very harshly if they weren't. Close political allies of the president. The other legal dimension of this, I think, is a little bit more complicated, and I think we'll we'll get into some of that later on in the podcast when we talk about uh, specifically talk about Roger Stone. Uh, but there's an interesting constitutional dimension here. So under Article Two, the president has uh, is vested with uh, sort of an undefined or largely undefined. There's some definitions of it. Um, degree of executive power, which among things really has been interpreted, you know, to be, um, you know, seeing that the laws are faithfully executed. So within that, there is, you know, the the, um, president's power to pardon, which I actually don't know if it's specifically under Article 2, if it's mentioned elsewhere. Um, But the question of can he legally and procedurally do this? And if so, like, does intent matter? That's a little bit unclear. Most, a lot, especially among conservative legal commentators, um, and definitely among probably some other constitutional scholars that may be not expressly political. Um, it, it seems that the answer to that question is yes, that the president can do that. Whether mm-hmm. the president should um, is a totally different question. Um, and I think you know, if he's sort of allowed to, if the answer is yes, then that reveals that there's a critical defect in the way that you know, the exercise of executive power works. Um, but I think um, as we're talking about this, it will particularly come up um, when we talk about Roger Stone. Yeah, so I think uh, really with that, uh, sort of in keeping with the theme of Criminal Justice Day, we have a, a variety of things that you know we want to cover over the next uh, uh, over the next several minutes here, um, and I think we'll dive right in talking about uh, probably one of the biggest legislative. Uh, movements uh, in the sphere of criminal justice, sort of moving past sort of the uh, executive exercise like the prosecution of criminal justice. All right. So today we will be discussing one of the most significant policy debates currently in vogue uh, in political discourse, criminal justice reform. And at the time of this recording, and indeed likely for the foreseeable future, the United States leads the world in the amount of people it incarcerates at well over 2 million plus individuals. Um, Put through a different lens, while the U.S. is home to approximately 5% of the world's population houses upwards of 22 to 25% of the world's known prison population. Uh, and this phenomenon of uh, mass incarceration, really the product of a complex web of legal, political, economic, and social factors that we can't at all sufficiently unpack in 45 minutes. But today, we will try to focus on what may be indeed a new chapter in the growing movement for reform, the First Step Act. Uh, but before we sort of dive into that, I want to also... Um, Introduce with us, who's here in the studio with us today, uh, Professor Joseph Margulies, who generously uh, agreed to sort of join us for our discussion today. Uh, just before we sort of dive into a general overview of the First Step Act and exactly kind of what it does, what it doesn't do, uh, I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, maybe about your work uh, in the criminal justice
2: space um, and what? Uh, Yeah, that's pretty much it. (laughs) Well, I'm a uh, – now, at least, I'm a professor here at Cornell. I I have a joint appointment in the law school and the government department, so I teach in both places. And my work – or one of the hats that I wear and have worn for a long time is in criminal justice. I have been a criminal defense lawyer forever, since Mm -hmm. long before becoming an academic. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I write about uh, criminal justice and – Uh, particularly the meaning of this uh, phenomenon, just uh, is it real or is it uh, uh, hype, uh, this idea of criminal justice reform? Mm. Mm
0: -hmm. Absolutely. I think uh, that'll become especially relevant to our discussion today about what a lot of the implications of the First Step Act are, again, kind of alluding to you know, does this actually fundamentally change anything uh, about the criminal justice system? Or is it, you know, the definition of very, very, very incremental reform that mm-hmm. scratches the surface? So with that, again, thank you, Professor Margulies. Uh, for Happy to be here. Uh, so for our listeners, we'll just sort of do um, a deep dive, oh, a, a very, an attempt at a deep dive in a short amount of time on the First Step Act. And our listeners may remember from our last episode, when we talked about the States Act, um, that, you know, we tried to sort of just cover and give a general frame. So, Really, the first step back, to, uh, Matt, you'll love this one, is another yeah. acronym, uh, the formerly incarcerated uh, reenter society Transform safely transitioning every person. Act. <laughs> um, another big uh, acronym, very s- similar to uh, the States Act. Um, so in terms of that alliteration there. Yeah. Um, so this bill was signed into law uh, by the 115th Congress in 2018 and really is one of the first major criminal justice reform bills of the new millennium uh, and has earned a considerable degree of bipartisan support in its current uh, form um, from some really perhaps unexpected figures in the criminal justice um, you know debate. Uh, the Koch brothers, for example, uh, yeah. were huge proponents of this and have some of their auxiliary organizations that actually played a role um, in formulating some of these provisions. Doug Collins, who's a ranking member of the Judiciary Committee... Um, Trump obviously signed the law and had vocalized some support. Um, but really, I think to sort of dive a little bit deeper into what the bill does. Uh, so really, the act, among many of its provisions, um, does a variety of different things. First and foremost, uh, retroactively applying some provisions of the Fair Sentencing Act, uh, which allows for um, you know certain things with regard to drug sentencing um, that would have been relieved under the First Step Act now applies retroactively. Um, because of what the Fair Sentencing Act has mm-hmm. established. Also, it allows for employees to store uh, the firearms securely uh, at federal prisons, restricts restraints, uh, use of restraints on pregnant women, and it also expands uh, compassionate release for terminally ill patients, places prisoners closer to their families in some cases, uh, depending on uh, where they're at. Um, and it's sort of a variety of different things that are going on here. But really, I, I think what's interesting is, With sort of the tenor of this bill, you know, we have there's also a call for a creation of rehabilitative programming that's aimed at reducing rates of recidivism um, and ways that kind of does this is sort of including language about granting increased access to employment training, help acquiring housing and greater opportunities for early release for good behavior. Um, And again, we're sort of very much skimming the surface here. Um, And the bill, uh, even in sort of preparation for this segment, we kind of discovered was really the work of a lot of extensive, extensive compromise um, on both sides. Um, It had a lot of Democratic support, right? It did, yeah. So initially, there was a lot of Democratic support. Uh, Really where a lot of the controversy came in was uh, a lot of the things with sentencing and early release. There was a lot of uh, Republican opposition to... Um, retroactively applying um, portions of the Fair Sentencing Act um, and other things for early release. Uh Um, But as I sort of uh, actually specifically on the point regarding the retroactive application of the Fair Sentencing Act, uh, really what that law did uh, was reduce the disparity between the amount of crack uh, cocaine and powder cocaine needed Mm -hmm. to trigger certain federal criminal penalties from a 100-to-1 weight ratio to an 18-to-1 weight ratio, Mm -hmm. and and eliminated the five-year mandatory minimum sentence for simple possession of crack cocaine, uh, among a couple of other things. Uh, So what that essentially means is that folks previously serving long sentences for drug-related crimes, specifically uh, for crack cocaine, saw their sentences, in some cases, retroactively reduced, resulting in many being eligible for early or immediate release from federal custody. Um, some having their sentencing changed in other ways. Um, And really, it seems that what the impetus for that act was, was uh, the retroactive implementation, um, you know, of some of these drug provisions, which is what the First uh, Step Act um, arguably accomplished in in some of these respects. And really, I think there's another critical dimension of this, uh, specifically with crack cocaine, that, um, this was something that uh, featured far more prominently in enforcement in African American communities, whereas uh, enforcement of uh, drug policy for, for example, white powder cocaine proved far more frequent in white communities. And there was a significant disparity in sure. that regard. Yeah. Um, so that's sort of like a general overview. We can get into some of the other details um, regarding some of the stuff that the act does and the effectiveness really at this point um, now here in 2020. But Professor Margulies, I kind of just wanted to open up, you know, what is your initial reaction to um, you, what the 115th Congress has done here? Does this truly stand up as a, you know, a revolutionary departure in terms of the way we've treated criminal justice?
2: Oh, God, no. <laughs> <laughs> um Republicans uh,
1: made it seem like it was. Yeah, some oh, that's kind of silly. like Trump held it up at the State <laughs> oh, of the Union. Oh, that's preposterous. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Um, <laughs> so if you look closely at it, it's a it's a grab bag of uh, provisions that are quirky and are obviously the the result of uh, uh, different legislators inserting things that were important to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, you know. There was news coverage of pregnant women being in restraints when they were Mm -hmm. delivering. Uh, So there's a provision in the bill that says thou shalt not put pregnant women in restraint when Mm -hmm. they're delivering a baby. Well, you know, that's that's that that happens so infrequently that you can't very well call that uh, a seismic reform. (laughs) Of Mm -hmm. course. If you look at the 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 people that it actually affects. Uh Um, there's two, you know, in any numbers, and you have to understand the the numbers that we're talking about here are very small compared to the entire, even the entire federal population, let alone the entire U.S. population, and most people in custody are in in state custody. Uh Um, It's the small number of people who are going to get retroactive benefit of the Fair Sentencing Act, Mm -hmm. um, and and that's a few thousand people. And then um, the larger number of people that would be beneficiaries of meaningful, robust uh, rehabilitation programs going forward, right? So Uh one is backward-looking and one is forward-looking. Those are the two potential bodies of um, uh, – those are the two changes that would affect the largest number of people. Mm -hmm. And that is where there has been the least movement in the enforcement of the the, uh, First Step Act. In fact, Republican uh, um, uh, legislators and the Department of Justice are resisting um, full retroactive application for some people. They're fighting over the release of some people. Wow. So they're restricting the number of people who get out as a, benef- as, a as a result of this. Mm-hmm. And Congress and the Trump administration are not adequately funding the rehabilitative side, uh-huh. right? You can't do that unless you the uh, yeah. authorize additional money, uh-huh. and so it, it, it's just a symbolic gesture that goes unfunded. It's an unfilled mandate. Yeah. yeah. So it, it, it's um look, it's called the first step back. Is, <laughs> is it better than the no step yeah, back? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's better than the no <laughs> step back, and yeah. a few thousand people are out, uh-huh. but. um Relative, it's about 2% of the federal population, and the federal population is only about 9% of the whole total in U.S. custody. So, Mm -hmm. does it affect a lot of people? No. Yeah. Is it good that they're out? Yeah, it's good that they're out. Yeah, of
0: course. Yeah, I think sort of dovetailing off of that, and you had mentioned this earlier on, But for our listeners, you know, would you be able to kind of distinguish here between the realities of federal versus state or local incarceration? Because the numbers, I think um, there's a considerable difference uh, in the way that we sort of understand mass incarceration. And I think highlighting that difference would be great.
2: Well, look, when you talk about the uh, whole number of people who are in any kind of of criminal justice custody, and this does not this does not include immigration custody, just criminal justice custody there's really several different buckets. One bucket is pretrial. That is, they're in custody pending a uh, resolution of their case. Mm-hmm. And most of those people are held in what we call jails. Uh, and then there are people who've been convicted uh, and sentenced to a term that leads them to be sent to prison. And, and, and those are folks that are in prison. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in those two buckets, uh, the if you add them all together, it's about 2, 2.1 million people. Mm-hmm. Of that, about 600,000 are in jail and about 1.4, 1.5 are in prison. Mm-hmm. Uh, 90% of the total bucket, uh, total, you know, jail and prison together approximately are in state custody, mm-hmm. either a state jail or a state prison. So the federal system Either pretrial or in a federal prison is relatively small. It's about 180,000 people, um, so it's uh, uh, it, it's a it's a much smaller fraction. It doesn't mean it's unimportant. It's extremely important, uh, but let's keep it in perspective. It's a very small number relative to the total.
0: Mm-hmm. And sort of building off of that as well, you know. When looking at the federal system, it seems that you know, there's a lot of conversation about enforcement of drug policy. You know, we see that a prominent feature of the First Step Act is you know the retroactive application of the Fair Sentencing Act, which really was focused on crack cocaine and the sentencing disparity there. Um, now, is that an accurate representation of what actually goes on in the criminal justice system in terms of what people are there for?
2: Um, so, again, it's split. Um, the... Federal system has made much more or, or did make much more serious use, much more prominent use of sending people to prison for drug cases. Um, they were not, generally speaking, possession cases. Usually they were some kind of distribution cases. Federal cases tended to be to involve larger quantities of drugs and um, uh, wider conspiracies, just as a rule. Are there exceptions? Sure. Um, but as a rule, you had uh, uh, more serious drug distribution rings would be prosecuted um, in federal court. Mm-hmm. So you have a higher percentage relative to the total uh, who are in federal custody on drug cases or their drug cases that also have other offenses with them, like violent crime. But that's not the case in state prisons. the overwhelming majority of people in state prison are there uh, for violent crimes. Mm. Now that doesn't violent crime is a term of art and so not every crime of violence is in fact involves what you and I would call violent behavior. It doesn't um. necessarily mean hurting somebody. Mm-hmm. It's how the state defines violent crime. But in New York, for instance, um, I think the last numbers I saw something like 72 or 73 percent of the prison population is therefore a violent offense. Yeah. And this myth that we send low level, nonviolent drug offenders, you know, possession of a small amount of weed to prison. That's just not true. That's not who's in prison, mm-hmm. either in state or federal court. If there are some, it's a very, very small number, particularly now. Mm-hmm. A few years ago, there were some researchers who tried to track it down. That was, I think, uh, uh, over, I think it was about a decade ago they tried to do this research. And back then they thought it was maybe 20,000 people uh, out of a population of 2 million. It's considerably smaller now. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. So I think kind of in connection to that, too, do you think that, you know, number one, do you think that the legislators are abundantly aware of the realities of, you know, that number one, Incarceration is, you know, statistically far more prominent in the state system. That as a number one, but number two, that you know, it is predominantly folks there that are there for violent crime.
2: Um, so, so the first step back is a federal uh, mm-hmm. uh, statute. Federal legislators certainly know that most people are not in federal custody. Most legislators are lawyers. Uh, they come up through the system. A lot of them were involved in the criminal justice system before they came up, they were prosecutors or judges, um, or they had positions in state court. They know that the first step act, uh, applies only to federal prisons. And that number is a very small fraction of the total. Uh, whether they know that, um, most people in prison are there for what the state calls violent behavior, uh, that I don't know the um, the influence of works like Michelle Alexander's New Jim Crow, which has been very very important in circulating this um, idea that prisons are chock full of people on low level nonviolent drug offenses, has been very pervasive. Unfortunately, it's a, it's an extremely important book. It's the most important book of the 21st century on criminal justice. But her essential proposition, uh, which is that prisons are full of low-level nonviolent drug offenders, is simply mistaken. And a lot of people might still believe that. Mm-hmm.
0: A lot of people do. I hear it
1: all the time.
2: Yeah, it's just a mistake. Well, it's a what, real shame.
0: And why do you think that, you know, that misunderstanding is, you know, why it prevails into our contemporary discourse? Do you think it's because of the way that it's presented in the media and popular culture, or why do you think that, you know, that's a common misunderstanding, especially if you hear, you know, different progressive prosecutors, for examples in cities like Philadelphia that talk about, you know, declining to prosecute low level drug um, mm-hmm. offenses and focusing on quote unquote more serious crime. Why mm-hmm. do you think that myth is, you know, very prominent still in our understanding?
2: Well, I think that, so a couple things. I think that, um, uh, most people really pay only sort of glancing attention to criminal justice issues. And they are aware at a a kind of abstract level that there are problems. And one of the problems that's just given a quick and simple label is, oh, if we just did this one easy fix, we would uh, uh, solve the crisis of mass incarceration. Mm -hmm. Um, And they don't really uh, look beyond that. It's not uh, something that they live with on a day to day. I'll tell you, everybody who's part of the, uh, uh, of the system, that is, you know, prosecutors, defense lawyers, judges, th- they know yeah. that, that, that this um, narrative is, is mistaken. I will say, however, that it's, if, if you hear prosecutors say, I'm not going to prosecute low-level nonviolent drug offenses anymore, or I'm mm-hmm. not going to prosecute um, uh, possession of a small amount of marijuana it's wrong to say that that's insignificant mm. um, merely because those people don't get sent to prison. This is extremely important. Just because they don't get sent to prison doesn't mean their life isn't pr- seriously altered mm-hmm. by being picked up, maybe spending a night in jail, having an arrest record, maybe even being convicted. They may not go to prison, but any involvement in the criminal justice yeah. system, is. There's, the, the research now is abundantly clear. Any involvement in the criminal justice system alters a life trajectory in a way that can be extremely disruptive mm-hmm. and debilitating. So just because a guy doesn't go to prison doesn't mean that there's no consequence to uh, getting arrested for a small amount of weed. And though we don't send those guys to prison, that is an exceedingly common arrest. There were eight yeah. in, in 2016 or 17, I think there were eight million people. Um, convictions for just a possession of a small amount of marijuana. Wow. Uh, you don't want to, you don't want to imagine that that's unimportant, even mm-hmm. though those guys don't go to prison. Mm-hmm. Right. And- but the, but the first step back doesn't touch that. It yeah. doesn't do anything about that.
0: Well, and kind of going back to what you were saying before, too. You know, you pointed out that the Trump administration and Congress really haven't, you know, shown any serious interest in providing the necessary funds and logistics to implement a lot of what the First Step Act allegedly wants to do, especially as it pertains to reducing rates of recidivism, reentry, and things like that. Through rehabilitation. Yes. Well, yeah. But um, well, they, they don't believe in that, really. I, I would argue. Well, I guess sort of what I would ask you, um, Professor Margulies, um, you know, let, let's assume that you know. We were able to, you know, acquire the necessary funding and logistics to implement what the first step back, you know, says that it wants to do. What exactly would those opportunities, or the ideal model of those opportunities, look like in terms of meaningful reentry or rehabilitative programs to try to reduce recidivism in the way that it says it claims it wants to do?
2: You know, the there is a a, a popular uh, myth. It's another popular myth that when it comes to rehabilitation, nothing works. Mm. Uh, There's no point in throwing money after this problem because nothing that we try will work. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's just not true. There's now a a lot of uh, work done uh, that demonstrates that a number of programs really are successful. Mm. Um, But they require two things. One, they require a commitment on the part of the facility to plan for the person's release, plan for the day they're getting out on the day they arrive. You got to begin planning for their departure on the day they arrive Mm -hmm. and never stop working towards their successful reentry. And that's not, that is not the norm in prisons around the country. There are some places where, like for instance, uh, in Maine, I don't remember, I don't know if he's still the commissioner of corrections, but The commissioner of corrections in Maine is the only commissioner who comes out of the the mental health uh, side of corrections rather than the security side of corrections Uh, and has a real commitment to um, uh, healing guys when they're inside. And his uh, philosophy is we start working for their release the day they come in. Mm -hmm. And the second thing it takes is meaningful commitment by the legislature to fund these programs. That, and, and, and that too is where things fall. Mm-hmm. Uh, the extent of underfunding in some of the prison systems around the country is horrifying. Mm-hmm. Uh, staffing is terrible. The pay, this is just for correctional officers, let alone rehabilitative programs and education programs and drug abuse programs and anger management programs and mental health treatment programs. Uh, that's effectively non-existent. And they can't even fill their their correctional officer positions because the pay is so bad, the morale is so low, the turnover is so high. So there's no financial commitment by the states and no uh, supplementary funding by the – or or de minimis supplemental funding by the federal government. Mm -hmm. So it's very hard to uh, get meaningful – Uh, programming in the prisons. Yeah, Professor, uh, what do you say to people who think that why should we be
1: spending billions of dollars or throwing billions of dollars at the Bureau of Prisons to increase rehabilitation when we need to, when we, to, to these people that are, you know, incarcerated while we could be like giving tax cuts to people who aren't incarcerated, for example, because this is a common point. Why should we be spending money on rehabilitation when we could be spending money for people who didn't go to prison, didn't make a mistake in their life? What do you say to those people?
2: Well, um, you know, first of all, I don't engage in this sort of divisiveness of you know, these are good people and these are bad yeah. people. And these are people we deserve to support. And these are people we deserve Of course. To, I, I didn't agree with that position. Same. I'm just no, saying. No, I understand. Yeah. I, I recognize that you're just yeah. playing devil's advocate. And yeah. people do ask questions like that. Mm-hmm. But I want to make make it plain that my this is just a matter of my personal philosophy. Mm-hmm. There is no them. There is only us. Agreed. There is no them. There's only us. Um, The second thing is, look, 95 percent of prisoners, state or federal, are going to get out.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: Very few, only a very small fraction of people um, uh, are going to be in prison until they die. Mm -hmm. Most of them are coming out uh that is especially true with the historic declines in violent crime that we have seen mm-hmm. where the violent crime rates in most jurisdictions are at rates they haven't seen since the 60s Wow. so people are going in for a relatively short period of time i don't mean th- it's way too long and there, are, <laughs> yes. and there are people who are you know still doing mandatory minimums that there's, there's still plenty of people who are sent for a very long time but they're going to come back out uh huh and the only question, if they're going to come back out, if you are just uh, trying to maximize social utility is, well, do you want them better when they yeah. come out or do you want them worse? They're <laughs> yeah. coming out. They're coming out and they're going to move to back to the communities from which they came. Uh-huh. Do you want them better or do you want them worse? We know how to make them better. We yeah. know how to make it better. Uh, and you just have a choice. Mm-hmm. And.
0: Really, when we're considering this issue, too, I thought it was particularly interesting right now that, you know, as Matt had talked about before, this is being trumpeted as, you know, a huge victory, a, a bipartisan, you know, movement on criminal justice. You know, Trump mentioned it in the State of the Union. Why do you think the parties, you know, the parties who, you know, are supporting you know this law and celebrating it? Why do you think that there's a bipartisan agreement now um, on an issue like this?
2: Um, so. A lot of people have looked at why it basically um, for the last 15 years or so, since early in the 21st century, the idea of criminal justice reform took off uh, It began to attract some bipartisan attention. Um, uh, and a lot of people have asked, well, you know, why? Mm-hmm. There's nothing in it that um, would make you know, starting in 2002 or 3, a more likely point than, you know, 1997 or 1997. Crime rates have been going down since the very early 90s. Um, uh, There are a lot of possible explanations that no one really is, but no one's really certain. Some people say that the criminal justice system just got so enormous and the number of people who were caught up in the carceral state, the mm-hmm. fraction of people who were with arrest records that were starting to interfere with their livelihood uh, became so vast that it no longer made sense to talk about the criminal justice system as a way to separate us from them because y- your son, your daughter were getting caught up and said, well, wait, this is not who I intended. So it was just, it was just proving to be too gigantic. Other people say it started to... We started to see real change when the complexion of people uh, being sent to prison started to change. uh, And you started to see uh, when when the crack epidemic ended and it was replaced by the methamphetamine and later the opioid epidemic and meth and opioid, at least at first, uh, were principally white uh, offenders and crack was at least in enforcement, more African-American offenders. And when you started to send more whites to jail and prison, people started to take notice again. Uh There's a lot of explanations that people offer, uh, but we don't really have good evidence of it. But I will say that the idea of reform itself, though there are dimensions of it that are bipartisan, is still really very limited. Even on a bipartisan level, the place where people agree and are willing to go is still very limited. Yeah. So for instance, there's very little support left or right on meaningful reform of police practices. Mm. It's all pluck a few people out of prison who never should have been there.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. Um, And even that is controversial. It's not, it's not nothing. Criminal justice reform is a real thing and it's making some difference and it's good. We are marginally sending fewer people to prison uh, and and keeping them there for marginally sh- shorter periods of time. But are we radically transforming our philosophy of criminal justice and materially reorienting our 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 purpose in criminal justice? No, not at all.
0: Well, and the follow up to that then is, you know, do you think that that change is possible? So, for example, I think it was uh, Senator Cory Booker that introduced um not too long after the first step Act, you know, the bill titled the second step Act, mm-hmm. which, um, you know, was meant to try to take some of these reforms further bearing in mind, you know, very much like the title says that this is not the rubber stamp on, you know, criminal justice reform that, you know, we're done with this and this problem is solved. That being said though, given everything kind of that you just said, um, uh, do you think that, you know, that type of meaningful policy reform that you alluded to is possible? Um, not even necessarily just in Congress, um, but also at the various state legislatures around the country.
2: It's absolutely possible. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, last year, New York, uh, when the new uh, crop of uh, progressive Democrats came in and and, and replaced a, a much more conservative group, um, <clears throat> they passed a number of very progressive uh, criminal justice bills that affected uh, not just prison populations, but um, uh uh, jail and enforcement, and the way cases move through the court system, and so on. It's clearly possible, uh, and if it's going to happen, it's going to happen at the state level and the local level. Um, whether it endures is uh, uh, remains to be seen. Uh, there's already pushback against some of the New York reforms that that are less than a year old. Um, uh, so whether And, you know, there's some indication that New York legislators may cave and retreat from some of the things that they did. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, So is it possible is one question. Is it likely is another. And um, being a a politician has never really been a profile in courage. (laughs) Yeah. So I think we did a pretty good amount on the
1: first step back. But it's really, you know, kind of funny timing having you on the podcast this week because the criminal justice system has been in the news so much in the past, say, about 10-ish days. And the reason for that is because of the Trump administration, specifically the Department of Justice, and they're meddling in the sentences of a couple of different uh, you know confidants of Trump. So I think it'd be it'd be good if we talked to you for a couple of minutes about this. And I'll give a little sure. bit of background. So Uh, A lot of people, if you follow the news, you probably heard the names Roger Stone and Michael Flynn. We're going to mostly focus on Roger Stone. Uh, So uh, Roger Stone actually was a campaign member of the Trump campaign during 2016 for, I think, a couple months. But he quickly left the campaign, but was sort of in the background, kind of advising Trump informally occasionally. And he actually got caught up in the Rush investigation. He was convicted on multiple charges of obstructing a congressional inquiry, lying to investigators under oath, and trying to block the testimony of a witness whose account would have exposed his lies. He actually threatened one of the witness's dogs, uh... <laughs> yeah so and like I said, it all goes back to the special counsel investigation, so uh, sentencing is actually supposed to happen soon, but what happened was the line prosecutors at the Department of Justice wanted to recommend a seven to nine year sentence for stone, and the reason why it's so high was for a couple of enhancements, I believe when it came to uh you know the violent witness intimidation that ended up increasing the sentence for Stone significantly. And what actually happened was Trump tweeted about This really high sentence. And a couple hours later, I believe the next day, uh, the DOJ reversed this position. And they didn't say a specific number of years they wanted, they just said significantly less than seven to nine years. Now, it's important to note that Barr says his mind was made up before Trump tweeted, except I'm not really sure how many people actually believe that. But regardless, it's the DOJ interfering in the decision of these career line prosecutors. So, you know, I, I was kind of wondering, Professor, is this like an unusual situation? I mean, a lot of people were saying, like, this is the, you know, the Saturday Night Massacre. Uh, and I was wondering, you know, because you're an expert on, you know, the criminal justice system, do we see this very frequently, these four line prosecutors resigning. Do we see the attorney general stepping in before a sentence has been handed down? We're not talking about pardons and commutations. We're talking about before a judge has issued a sentence, trying to to undermine the position of the line prosecutors. Is this an unusual situation or is this something that happens
2: a lot? Oh, no. Of course, it never happens. (laughs) Uh, I mean, first of all, you have to understand the, the recommendation that they gave was the Guidelines calculation, mm-hmm. um, there are federal sentencing guidelines which are advisory um, but they still hold a lot of sway and those uh, advisory guidelines recommended – you you calculate what the sentence is based on the crime of conviction and the underlying conduct and the recommendation led to uh, uh, a, a sentence – produced a, a, a proposed sentence of seven to nine years. It was not a particularly extreme sentence yeah. uh based on the totality of circumstances not unlike what thousands of guys are sentenced to sure. uh for equivalent conduct. And in none of those cases does the president say, "Well, this is a symbol." <laughs> uh and does the uh Department of Justice come in and overrule the line prosecutors who collectively have decades of experience and Uh who lived with the case, uh, uh, since the beginning, um, and, and come in with a, uh, recommendation of something meaningfully less. Uh, Uh, it, 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 so the short answer to your question is, does it happen very often? No, of course not. But it's not often that a close pal, the president is, um, uh, about to be sentenced. And yeah. Do you think those things are unrelated? Of course not. Yeah. No.
1: I don't think. I really don't think it's a coincidence here. So, but but a question a lot of conservatives are asking is why does this really matter? Because Trump could have pardoned Stone and Flint anyway. So if they're so if he's interfering before the sentence is handed down by the judge. Right. And bef- it's like, well, so like why does this matter? So yeah, I'm
2: fine with that. So yeah. well, let's just say the system is a mockery and he <laughs> can reduce it to rubble yeah. before the judge does anything or after the judge yeah. does anything. Right, yeah. You know, but 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 frankly, I'm I'm fine with that. Uh-huh. I I don't have any problem with this lesson learned from the stone affair, which uh-huh. is the rule of law is a joke. Uh-huh. If you're if you have the resources and the connections, uh-huh. Uh, politics will rescue you. And if you don't, you'll go to prison for seven to nine years. Well, I don't have any problem with that interpretation. That's what I believe. Uh I, I don't think that there... The people are so up in arms about how this is an affront to the rule of law. Well, that's only because they believe that there's real content to the idea and that the rule of law exists independent of politics and everybody's equal before the law. And... All these other myths that we learned when we were in, (laughs) you know, fourth grade. Well, just, you know, yeah, yeah, back in civics class. Well, just, you know, wipe the fog out of your eyes. That's not how the system works. Mm -hmm. And of course people like Stone get a break. That's the way the system works. And if you don't like it, the solution to that is at the ballot box. Yeah, Mm -hmm. sure so there's also
0: one of the other things that especially a lot of conservative legal commentators have been talking about is there's Matt sort of alluded to it with regard to the president's pardon power but lo- the larger constitutional you know question of you know the president's executive power via article two that you know it's totally you know what they're saying is that you know it's totally you know proper for the President to get involved in you know prosecution and recommendations because the justice department essentially is assisting the president in seeing that the laws are, you know, faithfully executed, I think is the way it's phrased. Um, So do you think that, you know, taking politics sort of out of it and, you know, the unsavory nature of Mr. Stone's involvement with the Trump campaign and with the Mueller investigation, do you think that, you know, even independent of that, that President Trump, in the status quo, can do this in terms of interfere.
2: You mean, is he constitu- Is it an impeachable offense for him to have done what he'd done? Yes. No, of course not. Of course he can do it. Mm-hmm. The, the Let's put it this way. Let's say Stone was sentenced to seven to nine mm-hmm. years and Trump just wasn't paying attention. And he opened up the newspaper and he saw that and he thought, well, this is outrageous. And he called in Bill Barr and he said, that's it. I want your resignation. This is scandalous that this should happen on your watch. Of course he can do that. Mm-hmm. There's no constitutional prohibition against that. Mm. Um, It's simply that it hasn't been done. That's not how things are done. He has the constitutional power to do this. Is that a
1: corrupt use of his constitutional power, though?
2: Is it corrupt? Um, Because
1: I think even if he exercises power, if it's corrupt, then can't that be an impeachable offense?
2: But but, so, again, the premise of the question presupposes that there's a – um, restraint on his power uh, that would disallow him from granting favors to his cronies. Mm-hmm. right? Well, wh- where does that come from? Uh, he can pardon whoever he wants. He can pardon anybody he wants. Well, and and if you don't like it, you the the solution to that is at the ballot box. Now, what he can't – you know, he can't obstruct justice. He can't suborn perjury. He can't tell the prosecutors, well, uh, I want you to throw this case. I want you to boot this case. I, I want you to lie and put on a witness who you know is going to lie. Well, that's a crime. But just like anybody else, he has a right to go in and say, well, that's an excessive sentence. Uh, and just like any, any other president, he has a right to say, you know what, Bar, you're done. Uh all it really does is expose the politics of law. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you don't you resist it because you think law is above politics or separate from. Well, get over it. Just stop mm-hmm. it. Law is not separate from politics. There's the law other, is just the iteration of politics.
0: There's the other dimension of this too that some people have pointed out that because the judge, at the end of the day, does have you know some has a considerable degree of sentencing discretion that you know she could be sufficiently angry at what's going on and you know sentence him to the recommended seven to of nine, course. something more, something less. Of course. I'm interested to see, like, you know, given that this has, number one, taken, you know, news and media by storm. There's a lot of, you know, argument among legal academics, uh, among, uh, there was, I think, 2,000 know, former Justice yeah, Department officials. 2,000. on uh, From a both ends of the political spectrum calling for Barr's resignation. Yeah, and um, Barr said,
1: Barr threatened to resign last night, according to the Washington Post and CNN. So that said. Do you think that the judge
0: will be in any way sort of affected by this whole fiasco and impose a sentence
2: less equal to or greater than um, you know what's on the table? It's impossible to imagine that the judge is unaffected. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How she is affected is very hard to to know. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're right that. Um, the guidelines are advisory. The way it works in federal court is, uh, the guidelines are advisory and both parties make recommendations as well as, um, you know, you know probation makes a recommendation. Mm-hmm. Everybody does their own calculation yeah. of what the guidelines should be and they make their pitch. Um, and the judge is not bound by any of them. Uh, so she could give more than seven to nine years. She could do her own calculation. Um, uh, and, and she could do less. Mm-hmm. So she she is free to within within certain limits um, to give a very different sentence. Uh, and I anticipate that if she gave seven to nine years, yeah. he would pardon him. <laughs> Trump would pardon him. Yeah. I and that's so. not an impeachable offense. It's appalling. Mm-hmm. And what Barr did was appalling. But much of what he does is appalling mm-hmm. and it, and the price he should pay for it is uh, a political one. Mm-hmm. It'll
0: certainly be interesting to see what happens uh, over the course of the next couple of days and weeks, you know, seeing A, what ultimately happens, but two, sort of what the long-term political ramifications of it are either way. Yeah. Um, certainly something that will not be going away anytime soon. So Professor Margulies, we just want to say um, thank you so much for joining us today. We uh, really appreciate it. Um, and also, thank you to my co-host again, Matt, yeah. uh, for being here. Thank you, Professor. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, uh, we will be returning uh, shortly after the February break. Uh, but in the meantime, we want to thank CornellRadio.com for their generous uh, airspace uh, and facilities. And uh, we look forward to uh, talking to you next time. So, again, I'm Vincenzo Guido. I'm Matthew Chekhov. And uh, this has been Law & Society Talk. Thank Take you. care. Bye.